Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We're going to welcome you again to our study of the book of Genesis. This is week number eight in our study. We've been looking at the book of Genesis and kind of going one topic at a time and then exploring how that topic pervades to the biblical story. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 really sets the context for the rest of the biblical story. And it's way more, by the way, than what I've been discussing here. So way more. So as we move on, this will be our last study here. We'll take a week off and then we'll do Genesis chapters 4 through 11 over the course of the month of June. If you're listening to this somewhat live in 2022, you're welcome to join us. Just send me an email at rdownerple19.com and I'll be happy to invite you to the Zoom call. But uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 today, and we're starting in verse, what do we got? Verse 11, is that right? Verse 11. So somebody want to read Genesis 3, verses 11 through 13. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right. Very good. This is just classic passing the buck, right? This is, uh, this is just beauty as it, as it goes. So and we have a professional counselor on, board, on, on the call who probably goes, yeah, I see this all the time. And all the rest of us are laughing because we're all, well, we do it too. So here we go. God, so God asked of Adam, you know, who told you that you were naked? If you recall from our previous study, God says, where are you? Uh, and he says, I was hiding because I was naked and I was afraid. And God's like, well, I wasn't asking why you're hiding. I was asking where you are. Now you bring it up. Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the, and the answer is the woman whom you gave me, it's God's fault. Well, it's Eve's fault, but ultimately it's God's fault because it's not my fault. It's the woman whom you gave me. Uh, it's like, <laughs> Saying that to God, like it's like, really? Uh, I might want to not go down that path. So the men in the room are being quiet right now. Uh, here we go. So then God asked of Eve, what is this that you have done? And what does she do? She blames the serpent. The serpent deceives me. Ah, here we go. Now, remember the fact that the serpent deceived me. We'll, we'll talk about the serpent, the serpent a little bit as we proceed. But as you move on through the biblical story, the serpent is the deceiver. And if we have time at the, end of the, at the end of the day or the end of the evening tonight, remind me, if we have time, about the millennium and the serpent. How's that? Just, I'll throw that out there if somebody wants to take that down as a note. The millennium and the serpent, because I think that actually provides our answer to the question. But uh, let's move on for right now. Anybody have any questions or comments? Yeah, Helen. I'm, I'm super curious um, around the age of Adam and Eve, like emotional age of Adam and Eve at that point, because they... No, okay, you froze, Helen. So uh, oh, you said that the emotional age? Yeah, they seem childlike to me in how they're kind of. So I was just curious whether, you know, whether there's any discussion about that at all. There's no way to answer the question. And anyone that tries to answer the question is, is speculating on something the text doesn't give you anything to, to, to go on at all. And Note that question also. And again, if we have time at the end of the night, I'll give you some other thoughts on that that kind of might, might stretch your mind, but I'll leave it at that. The, the text doesn't answer. There's just no way to say, right? I, if I've heard any speculation before and it's totally, it's silly, 
in their mid-20s. They're mature adults. But remember, they were described as being infants or being children because they didn't know good and evil yet. So there's no way to answer the question, though. So I'm right, moving on. Anybody else? Verses 14 through 19. Genesis 3, 14 through 19. All right. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat it, or eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, there's a number of misunderstandings that happen in this passage. We're going to try to clarify a few of them. But let's begin with some kind of preparatory notes. The first uh, two fill in the blanks are, it says, God, God's words are more descriptive than prescriptive. And let me explain, but they're more descriptive than prescriptive. So the first fill in the blank is descriptive, and the second one is prescriptive. He's telling us the way it's going to be as a declaration of fact. He's not prescribing something. He's describing something. He's not, you know what, because you did this, I'm going to make this, make sure this is the case. He's simply saying, this is what's going to happen. This is the way it's going to be. And the note below says, it's not a punishment, but a declaration of fact. All right, now, as we move forward there, the focus is now on the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And something should tell you already the fact that women don't have seeds that something greater and more significant is going on uh, than just some seed of this versus seed of that. And obviously the, well, how do, how do you kind of get over that? Continue to go over that as we go through chapters four through 11 in our, in our next study. But the focus is now on the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Right, next thing to note, God does not curse Adam and Eve. And this is commonly misunderstood. Oh, God curses the serpent, then he curses the woman, then he curses the man. That is not true. God does not curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent and the lamb. The serpent and the land are the only things that are cursed. God never places a curse on Adam and Eve. And I think that's very significant. So on the serpent, he's going to eat dust in accordance, of course, with the sin of, force, of forcing them to eat, right? So the, the serpent's now going to, going to eat dust. And there's a lot of things that are going on. I'm, I'd rather not get into a long conversation about the nature of the serpent here. That's okay. But let's see, there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman, in verse 15, letter B, this is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, or the first announcement. Uh, evangelium is the uh, Greek word for good news. Proto is first or before. So the, the first good news. And it's, we call it the Proto-Evangelium, or the first prophecy even in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. It's the, kind of the first prophecy, and that is, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and between her seed. And seed... There's a couple of things you need to know about the word seed. First off, seed most often refers to an immediate descendant. So when we get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, Seth is called the seed of, of Adam and Eve. Like, oh, that, maybe, it's, maybe this is the seed that we're talking about. But the second thing about the word seed is that it can refer to a distant offspring or even a group of descendants. The word seed is plural, but it behaves like a singular word. 
So you might say the committee is in session. Well, the committee is a group of people that are meeting, but we use the singular verb is. The committee is meeting right now. So the word committee is a, what we call a collective. It's, it refers to a plural thing, but it acts like a singular verb. So the same thing with the word seed, right? You don't use so seed. And we can say seeds, plural. We can say that in English. But the word seed is also can be used as a plural all by itself. I'm, I'm casting seed. Oh, go ahead and cast all the seed. And some, some of the seed fell on the roadside. Well, that, that's actually acting as a collective. So bear that in mind. All right, here's the prophecy. The prophecy is number two. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Now the word for bruise might be better translated as like crush. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In fact, the idea of um, both actually implies a lethal blow. So it's not just like, oh, you're going to wound him. He's going to wound you. It's like, no, actually, you're going to, he's going to destroy you and you're going to destroy him. And of course, if you're wondering like, well, what does that mean? The answer is the cross. Clearly going us, taking us to the cross. That's why the gospel writers are so big to say Satan entered into Judas in the gospel of John. So Satan is involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's Satan bruising him, bruising his heel. But Jesus crushes his head. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we, as we proceed. Any, any questions as we're going? I do. Yeah, please. Um, in the first, uh, where it says, um, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. So is cattle and beasts of the field cursed then? Or what is, what is this implying? What is, what is the implication of this when it comes to cattle and beasts? I think of what it's saying is you are one of the beasts and you're going to be cursed more than all the other ones. doesn't mean that they're actually cursed. It just means your curse is worse than theirs. So if any of them are cursed, that's fine, but yours is worse. Okay, gotcha. Yep. So, okay. Anybody else? So here we go. So uh, let's go down. Uh, to, to the woman. So the, so the first thing is he, he addresses them in reverse order of how they were introduced. And this is called a chiasm, right? Where you, he introduced Adam first, then Eve, then the serpent. And then he refers, uh, um, rebukes, uh, gives judgment. Don't say curse because he doesn't curse the woman and the, and the man. But he re refers back to the judgment of them in reverse order. So Satan first or the, the serpent first, then the woman, then the man. So to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in child. Well, the re this is actually surprising. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've done enough research in Hebrew scholarship to know this. Childbearing is not correct. All right, so here we go. New American Standard says, I will greatly increase your pain in, child in childbirth. Or actually, I'll greatly multiply. And that's a good translation because multiply, obviously, Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. And all of a sudden, now you're at the multiplying. It's going to be a problem. Uh, your pain in childbirth. The ESV says in childbearing, much better. The Net Bible says labor pains, not what it means. Um, NIV, childbearing. New Living Translation, the pain of your pregnancy, your conception, New King James. New Revised Standard says childbearing. So the Hebrew refers to conception. The Hebrew refers to the work, at, to the work of conception. And it means that the circumstances in which children are conceived will be fraught with painful and complicated relationships that cause emotional and physical toil. 
And I think I got that from Tim Mackey in the Bible Project and one of his podcasts, I was listening to that. And I might've stole that line there to give him a quote unquote there from it. But the word refers to child um, conception, child conceiving. And as you go to the book of Genesis, what do you have? Story after story of women that can't conceive at all or of barrenness and jealousy of men who have families that they sexually abuse their women. You know, Abraham and Sarah, she can't have any children. So what does she do? Hey, take Hagar. And all of a sudden, Hagar has a child and that causes all kinds of complications. It's the conception. It's this whole idea of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. You're going to have problems and complications in this. Men who have too many wives. Jacob marries like all these different women and none of the women get along. The 12 tribes are from all of his wives. And you get conflict because these siblings are somewhat related to each other. Their moms don't like each other. This is the context. It's going to be all the difficulty in just having families and having being fruitful and multiplying, not the pain of childbirth. Oh, well, you know, she had pain in childbirth before, but now it's like really bad. That's, that may be true, but that's not what this passage is discussing. The passage is describing the human relationships that are involved in the act of childbearing or child conceiving. And there's going to be conflict in them. Remember, Adam and Eve were to be one, and they were to rule together as one, and then they were to be fruitful and multiply. And now the act of being fruitful and multiplying is going to be very problematic. Does that make sense? Problematic because they might be barren, problematic because there might be adulterous relationships, problematic because there might be other, other wives being involved, problematic because of all, all kinds of other issues. And as you read through the book of Genesis, that, oh, that's what those stories are all about. Remember, by the way, you can't read Genesis and go, these are the heroes of the faith, which is the way I was taught in Sunday school. These guys are not the heroes of the faith. They are far from it. They are it's like, how does God use these people? And the answer is, if God can use them, then he can use us too. We're, there's, there's hope for us, right? Yay! Our church is okay. We're not, we're not even as bad as, as they were, and they're in the Bible. Here we go. The next verse, also radically misunderstood, or not, not the next verse, but the next point on number two on the outline. And I wrote about this in my blogs on uh, Determined Truth. Uh, it says, your desire will be for your husband. All right, now the Hebrew word, Tasasqua appears only three times in the Old Testament. And this is the word for desire. I probably should have put that down in the notes. The Hebrew word for desire occurs three times in the entire Old Testament, which means that's bad news. Because when it comes to what a word means, you don't go to a dictionary or a lexicon to find out what a word means. You go to see how the word's used. And the more times the word's used, the more often you realize, okay, this is the way they use it. If they use a word a thousand times, and 750 times it's used this way, you can, that's the standard meaning. And 125 times it's used this way, 100 times it's used this way, and 25 times it's used this way. Okay, there are variations of, how it mean, of what it means, but the standard meaning is this one. And in the context, that's the meaning here. Or, well, it's also used this way 125 times. And the context here says that's how you go about the process of determining what a word means. So, by the way, if you ever have pastors or preachers get up and say, they give sermons on, and they spend 10 minutes on the meaning of a word, you probably need red flags because the meaning of the word should be apparent from the context. And if the meaning of the word that they give you in this great sermon isn't apparent from this context, then they're probably reading something into the meaning of the word that's probably not there in the context. Now, sometimes, like Vinny and I just did a podcast and we talked about what the word glory means. And the reason for that is because the common meaning of glory, I think, and you guys tell me if you think something different, I think when we think of glory in the church, we think of like, oh, 
hallelujah. I can't sing, and I couldn't sing without, without a, with a voice. You know, we sing a hallelujah, we sing of like worship, we sing of ecstatic utterances and praise music. That's what I think we think of. And that's not what the glory, the word glory means. So we beheld his glory in John 1, 14. So Vinny and I spent five, 10 minutes saying, hey, this is what it means in the Hebrew Bible. This is what it means in the Greek New Testament. This is what it comes to mean in the Gospel of John. Here's how it flushes out. And the context is showing you this. So that's kind of the, the idea. So I, Bill and, and Gracie, and I don't know if anybody else, uh, I preached for seven years, and Gracie was probably there for like all, every single sermon all seven years. I rarely ever mention the mean, what a word means in the Greek or Hebrew in the middle of a sermon. I think maybe three times, four times, because you shouldn't need to do that. It should be obvious from the, meaning, from the context. But this word has been abused. Your desire will be for your husband. Oh, see there, women, you're going to desire your husband. Right? And then the next line says, and he's going to rule over you. Ah, see, God established male domination. Patriarchy was established in the book of Genesis. This is the argument. That's why I'm harping what the word means. Because they'd say the word desire means you're going to desire your husband in the subordinate role, subordinate, subordinate way, whatever that word means, subordinativity, um, what have you. And he's going to rule over you. See, God may have made uh, Adam and Eve equal in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They're co-heirs. They're both made in God's image. They're both going to rule over the fish, the sea, and the birds of the air. They're both going to subdue the earth. They're both equal. Uh, Eve's the helper, but it's not inferiority. That's fine. But in Genesis 3, Eve desires her husband, and he rules over her. That's not what it says. So let me explain. The word only occurs three times for desire. And so that becomes problematic. Like, what does this word mean? Now, the benefit actually is this. The second occurrence of this word is in Genesis 4, verse 7. So notice we have two occurrences of this word within a very short span of time. And so if we can see what it means in Genesis 4, maybe that'll enlighten us what it means in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 4, it's talking about Cain killing his brother Abel. And look what it says in verse 7. It says... If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. There's the word desire. And the word desire in Genesis 4-7 is sin's desire to dominate you, right? I mean, that makes sense. If I say the word means, the word desire means to dominate you, it fits the context of Genesis 4 verse 7, right? Sin is crouching at your door. And if you don't do well, it will take you over. It will dominate you. That makes sense. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, just a, what, 10 verses earlier, whatever it might be, and say, is that what it means in Genesis 3.16? That Eve is going to desire to dominate her husband. Ah, is it saying she's going to desire to be subordinate to her husband? Or she's going to desire to dominate him? Now, let me, let me before I go any further, let me remind you. <laughs> Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 says... They're going to be co-equals. They're going to be co-rulers. Sin enters into the story. And now what do we have? Friction in rulership. So if I'm correct here, and let me go one more step to defend it. It's saying that she wants to dominate him, but he's going to rule over you. In fact, the word for rule actually implies ruling as a tyrant. So you want to dominate him in ruling, but he's going to dominate you. And again, this is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's another big mistake that people make here. So let me see if I can clarify everything again. 
It's not saying that she's going to desire to be subordinate to her husband and he's going to rule over her and God's prescribing this. He's not prescribing anything. He's describing the way it's going to be. And what he's describing is you're going to want to dominate your husband and, and dominate him like sin's going to dominate uh, Cain if he's not careful, but it ain't going to happen. He's going to dominate you. And as you go to the book of Genesis, what happens? The male dominates over the woman and just go through the entire Old Testament. The male continues to dominate over, over the woman. So this all of a sudden brings into the picture of say, well, oh, maybe God did not prescribe patriarchy. Maybe God did not describe female subordination. So all of a sudden he didn't, he just uh, prescribed, he just describes it. So when you get to the New Testament, you know where I'm going to go with this. All of a sudden Jesus comes along and says, you know what, guess what? There's not a Jew nor Gentile, slave nor female nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul understanding Jesus. So I think the New Testament is saying, we're going to go back to what it was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2 when it got messed up in Genesis 3. Let me stop there. Does that make sense? Comments or thoughts? You can see why this is such a big issue, right? This is a huge issue. And I've written about this extensively. I think also, I'll keep talking until you guys have any questions. I think also this has made, made serious problems in cultures and societies. Uh, some Christian contexts and cultures where women are suppressed and, and their rights are suppressed. Well, think of the founding of America. Women weren't allowed to vote until the 1900s because they were inferior. And that comes from this Judeo-Christian value. Now, there are other cultures where women are suppressed. So you go to certain cultures in, in Indonesia, whatever, where girls don't get to go to school because we can't afford to pay for both our kids to go to school. We only pay for our boys to go to school. Well, that's not a Christian culture, but that's still a patriarchal culture. And so if the church were able to go, hey, that's, what if we spoke into that and said, let's value girls. By the way, talking about abortion that we were talking about before we came on air, a lot of abortions are gender selective. They abort the girls. And what if the church said, no, no, no. Not because you're murdering, but because we want to value women and girls as much as we value boys and men. So anybody else? Hey, Please. As you were saying that, I couldn't help but reflect on one of your podcasts. Miguel was talking about the, the, the war on drugs and how it was uh, blighting Philadelphia. But she also mentioned what was going on in the South with spousal abuse. Mm. And here you had there again, the, the, the Bible Belt, and there was rampant spousal abuse, but yeah. nobody knew about it or was talking about it because I think it reflects back on the tyrant rule. It was going along with all that bad religion, if you will. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before or not in particular here, and, and we'll move on in just a second. The Southern Baptist Convention, some of you know, is the largest denomination in, in North America, the uh, largest Protestant denomination in North America. They have had a major, major scandals that have been, that have finally come out. They've acknowledged all of it and they're trying to address all of it regarding sexual abuse. So a large number of their pastors that have abused congregants, it's, it's horrible, it's horrid. And some of these pastors actually got hired at other churches and these, and because they didn't do, you know, why did you get fired at your last church? Oh, it doesn't matter. You're good to go here. They're like, no, we're making a register of all these people that have been accused and convicted of abuse within our, within our churches. So they cannot get hired at other churches. And if you have hired them, you're going to get rid of that person or we're going to kick you out of the denomination. So it's been a major issue that they're really starting to handle from the top, from the top down. But the point of that actually of me saying that is that's not the only denomination that's had this issue. There's been a number of other denominations that are having this issue. And my point would be, and other denominations that don't have this issue, you just haven't investigated it yet. You better investigate these things 
So, and I can say that to my own denomination because our denomination hasn't investigated this yet. You need to stop and investigate this now because, and our, our denomination ordains women and everything else, I think this is a huge issue and the social reper uh, repercussions of this and implications of it are, are, are pretty serious. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. Here, your descriptive of what it really means is so helpful. Good. If we have that shared more often yep. and taught more often, yep. maybe that would change the dynamic of how we treat women in our yep. society. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's, it's ingrained. So it'll be quite a battle. So, yeah. In, in India also, sir, we, in our places also, this, on this verse we read uh, in the Bible, sir. So pastors also share in a different way that women have to submit and they, they have to very calm and quiet, such a, such a way they teach. And also in, in, uh, in Hinduism also, a sister, a sister is saying, at present also there are many you know, beaten women are there and uh, if lady, if girl is uh, you know, conceived, uh, she they will kill uh, in 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 it. Uh, like what can I say? Abortions are you now many happening. Uh, wow. Yeah. The the way you explained really you know in a very balancing and very nice. Uh, good. And this is the first time I'm hearing. Thank you so much. Sir. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, you're good. Wonderful. Yeah. Good. Wonderful thought. And go back and replay it again because I think it's something that we need to address too. So yeah, I did notice a cultural. Uh, let's continue. Uh, Genesis three verses twenty-two through tw or actually twenty through twenty-four. We're just going to go over these last five verses kind of briefly, and then we we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the other part. Genesis three verses twenty through twenty-four. If somebody wants to read. The man called his wife Eve because she became the mother of all the living. For the man and his wife, the Lord God made leather garments with which she clothed them. Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing what is good and what is bad. Therefore, he must not be allowed to put out his hand to take fruit from the tree of life also, and thus eat of it and live forever. The Lord God therefore banished him from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. When he expelled the man, he settled him east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim and the fiery revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, thank you. So Adam names Eve, uh, whose, whose name means living. And the word actually is almost identical to the Hebrew word for living. God makes clothes for them and then God expels Adam and Eve. Now this becomes central to the biblical story. And I've said this before for some of you might, might recall. God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. So here's, here's the story. Adam is made outside the garden. Adam and Eve are made outside the garden. And then they're brought into God's presence. And then they sin and God expels them from God's presence. And then God will bring them back into his presence. And then he'll expel them again. This back and forth, 
this exile and restoration. Now, I think that one of the key points of the biblical story is that repentance is the key before a person can be restored back into God's presence. But nonetheless, this, this is the Abraham story. Abraham, come. And by the way, now what, look what happens. They get expelled to the east. And ultimately, in the east is where Babylon is. So this is where Babylon is. So now they're ultimately going to get expelled to the east. But remember, Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldees, which we're not certain exactly where Ur of the Chaldees is. But the most common assumption is, is that Ur of the Chaldees is just south of Babylon. It's, it's Babylon. It's uh, modern day language would be Kuwait. But so there's, there's uh, Iraq and then there's Kuwait. And Babylon is modern day Iraq. So Abraham is in Babylon, basically, and come to where I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make your name great. So Abraham's called from Babylon back to the, back to the land of promise. Then they get expelled. They go off into Egypt. They come back. Then they get expelled. And then Jesus comes, and they come back. So this is constant coming into God's presence and being expelled from God's presence. So God says the man's become like one of us, and that's the, the divine counsel, the godly counsel that we discussed before. They're expelled from the garden. And I put on your notes, the language here is the language of exile and being driven out like the Canaanites. It's also the same word for being the expulsion of the Canaanites. And then east of the garden, the cherubim are placed. And the point number one underneath your notes there says the cherubim guard the presence of God, meaning they do what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Ah, remember Adam and Eve were supposed to guard the garden. And so now... The cherubim are doing what Adam and Eve are supposed to do, and the people they're guarding it from is Adam and Eve. So the irony above ironies is you're supposed to guard this place, and now we got a garden, so you can't come here. Cherubim are embroidered on the curtains of the temple. So we won't get into this now, and maybe we'll do a study of Exodus at some point in time. But the temple, the, the tabernacle of Moses, the curtain, and, all the, and even the later on the temple of Solomon's Day, there's all the symbolism of it is Eden symbolism. All, it's the tree of life is in there. There's clouds, there's the sky, there's the creative animals. Uh, there's all the embroidery, everything of the symbolism of the temple and the tabernacle is Eden symbolism, which goes to reinforce what we've been saying. Eden was a temple. So the cherubim, of course, are embroidered on the, on the curtains of the temple. And they're also, there's two of them that have outstretched wings to cover the, and protect the ark. So on top of the ark of the covenant are these cherubim and their wings touch each other. Now in the middle there's nothing there because that's where God's presence is supposed to be. And God's presence is not to be visible. Uh, so uh, they're supposed to guard and watch everything, the very thing that Adam and Eve were supposed to do. There's your Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 stories. Oh, by the way, they're kicked out of the garden. Trick question. Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? Oh, because they sinned. Well, actually, it never says that. It never says, if you sin, I'm kicking you out of the garden. In fact, it never says, I'm kicking you out of the garden. If you do this, you will die. So why were they kicked out of the garden? So they couldn't eat of the tree? Yeah, so they couldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. So the reality is, and again, this is actually God's mercy. Always understand, again, we have this conception of God um, as mean and uh, punishing and an ogre who's just waiting for us to sin so we can, he can punish us. That is not the Old Testament God, and it's certainly not the, the New Testament God. So if God so loved the world is kind of one of the key verses in the entire Bible, that's not a new thing in the Gospel of John. It's like, oh, guess what? From now on, God loves the whole world. He's really changed his ways, guys. He went to a 12-step program. It's all better now. 
It's like, no, God has always loved all the world and God is love, always has been. So to read the Bible as though God's this punishing God, this judging God, it's like, actually, that's not accurate. It's his mercy, because if he doesn't kick them out of the garden, they'll live forever in a sinful state. Just, I'm, just think about it. I mean, life is okay right now. Not bad for me. And some, some of you guys, maybe you're a little sick under the weather. Maybe you live in different parts of the world. Maybe you want it to end. But for the most part, it's okay. But I'm telling you right now, if Hitler were still running around, we wouldn't think so. If we can't die we, and we can't be redeemed, we live forever in a sinful state, that's going to be really bad. You got Hitler, you got Nero, you got Mao Zedong, all living at the same time. It's not going to go well. So it's mercy by which God kicks us out of the garden because now we can die and through death, we can be redeemed. To throw a little Pauline theology into clear right now, the flesh gets corrupted by sin. And so the flesh must, be, must die and then be resurrected. And as it's resurrected, ah, it can be redeemed now. And therefore, there's no more death, pain, suffering, or sin in, in the new life. Does that make sense? Now, no one's asked the million-dollar question. I thought it's been interesting. I've kind of been letting it go. I got one. Okay, go ahead. So God clothed them. Do you think he clothed them in wool? Or should I say a lambskin? What are your thoughts? Uh, it seems to be animal skin, yes. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not going to answer the question, did God offer the first sacrifice? That's one of the thoughts that's out, that's out there. Lamb is interesting, right? Because obviously the, the association with Jesus. So it's leading us to the New Testament there also, right? All right, anybody else? Yes. Yeah, so if, the, if he placed a guard at the garden so they couldn't go back in, what happened? To the garden? Uh-huh. Okay, so let me answer that with something you may not want to hear, but it's okay. We can move forward and we can go on to the next chapter if we want. You're okay with it. And it goes back to Helen's question earlier. I don't remember exactly what Helen's question was. What was that question you asked earlier, Helen? Then I said, if we have time, we'll bring it back up. Oh, how old were they? How old were they? It goes back to the question of like, where's the garden located? That's kind of your question a little bit, right, Anna? It's like, well, where's the garden located? Are the angels still guarding it? Now, the traditional answer to your question, Anna, is it was destroyed in the flood. That seems kind of silly to me, to be honest with you, because it's like, it's Eden. I don't think God's going to let this thing be destroyed in the flood. So I think my answer, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I am, I am a biblical scholar. So let, me, let me clarify that. My training is in the art of biblical interpretation. So obviously, I've spent most of my career in the New Testament, biblical interpretation in the New Testament. But as a person trained in biblical interpretation, we were definitely trained throughout the Old Testament and the New church history, all the like, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and all, the, and all the like. So I have experience in this. And as I read the text, I would say this is a text that is telling us a story to provide us a background and a context from which the Old Testament story is then going to take place. Meaning, I don't think we should read this as though Adam and Eve are actually historical characters living in an actual place on the, on the earth, where there actually was cherubim guarding the entrance so they couldn't actually get back into it. I think this is a story that the Israelites came up with to explain origins and to explain Yahweh is the creator of all things. And they crafted this as a literary piece. It's beautiful, literary. And that's why the later story fits so well with this story. It's because the writers of the later story are the ones who wrote this story. 
if that makes sense. So I think that's the case. Now, let me clarify this by saying this. I used to be a young earth creationist, literal 24-hour day, seven-day creation. The earth is 10 to, 10 to 50,000 years old. I used to teach that when I first started teaching 30 years ago. I'm getting old. Th about 30 years ago. I taught that for about a year or two, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, I'll teach it as a theory from this point forward, right? Because I, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I, I buy this one. But so I kind of started waffling on that a little bit. And then I really let this, sit, this question sit because the majority of my focus was New Testament. And, but then I come back to it now and I go, yeah, this, this is a story. And I can see how this is a story that's being crafted to tell the grand narrative of God's scheme. And I, I think that's the way I would look at it. So I don't, I don't consider personally that I have many of her historical characters. So that answers Helen's question. How old were they? It's totally irrelevant to the text. So you might not agree. And I think, by the way, I interviewed Tremper Longman on the podcast uh, a year or two ago. He wrote a book, uh, Old Testament Controversies, I think was the name of his book. And right after it came out, and Tremper Longman is one of the preeminent evangelical scholars of the Old Testament. He was on the committee for the New Living Translation. That's why I said that. He's a premier scholar on the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and the, the poetic, that, that uh, wisdom literature. He's also done extensive work in the book of Genesis. He's written a number of uh, volumes on the book of Genesis also. So one of his Old Testament controversies was on this, and we, we were discussing that, that particular question. John Collins, is that the guy's name I'm thinking of, who was involved in the, um, he oversaw, he was a uh, human genome. The human genome project. Thank you very much. He oversaw the human genome project. And he came out and said, look, it's very apparent from the mapping of the human DNA, the human genome, that there were 16 original human beings to begin with. Humanity didn't come from one couple, it came from 16. So it came from a community. And so science, and again, science is always this ever-changing thing. So you could be careful about that. That's kind of where, where they're at. So does that help? Well, what it's showing you, if I can, if I think I get your question, um, Jazz, it's showing you that the man's usurping authority over the woman. Remember, you've got this conflict between who's mm -hmm. going to rule. And the answer is, you're going to desire to rule over him, but he's going to dominate over you. And guess what happens two verses or four verses later? He names her, which means he's usurping authority over her. So, yep. Emperors in the beginning when he names the animals. Uh, the animals. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Helen, were you going to add something? Yeah. So I was just going to say, so are you saying that Genesis is an allegory? No, okay. no, uh, big difference there. So an allegory is simply a story, a story where things represent something else. So uh, Mount Sinai represents the law. That's an allegory, right? Where one-to-one -one correspondence isn't there. You have to read into the story of what's going on there. I'm saying this is a story of the ancient Israelites' way of telling the story, but I'm not saying it's not necessarily historically uh, accurate by modern historical standards. In the sense that there actually was a garden there with Adam and Eve as these actual creatures in there. The fact that you got a talking serpent should tell you already to begin with, by the way, this, that wouldn't have surprised the ancient storytellers because that's just what they thought of. But when we look at it and go, okay, talking snakes, do we need to go any further? No, this is not historic. This is not a, an actual historical account of, of what really actually transpired. At the same time, however, the, uh, how would you say it? The, the themes, the theology that's, that's embedded in there, the sovereignty of God, God as creator, the humanity's choice to 
who's going to be who's going to rule the wisdom that says god you're in control all that that we've been fleshing out that's there's unequivocally theologically correct whether or not it's predicated on actual historical events or not that makes sense i'm going to avoid using the word myth and the reason why is because that's actually a correct word but what they meant by myth is not what we mean by myth what we mean by myth is simply just false an untrue story but that's not what they meant by myth this is that's just the way they told stories back then and our first reaction to myth is, is it true? Is it true? And that's, and they're like, of course it's true. But again, we're asking true on this historical ver verifiable context. And that's not the way they were thinking that they would even have thought of answering the question. Where do you, where do you draw the limit on that though? Because you yeah. have a talking donkey, you have a day that stood still, you have a day that went backwards, you have darkness throughout the whole land. Um, yeah. Aha, uh -huh, very good. So genre is the first thing that you have to look at. That's very good, right? So genre is the very first thing you have to look at. And what's the context? What's the, what's the genre? Now, again, that's where we get in trouble, right? So I'm teaching next week on biblical interpretation. Obviously, genre is a big issue. But what we do with genres is we say, okay, history means this. And we use modern historical standards of what history means. But if you look at the story of, for example, in 1 Samuel, you're not going to get more history than 1 Samuel. Well, okay, true. But it's not history the way we write history. So in chapter 16, for example, for example, we tell a story history in chronological order. They didn't. I think it's 1 Samuel 16, David slays Goliath. The next chapter, David introduces a character you've never met before. It's like, uh, I know who he is. He just slayed. So something's going on there. It's literary and literary at, at its first basis. And so, and when you see the literary themes, it's actually masterful literature. I mean, this is literary of the highest quality. It's really, really good liter literature. That's the first thing you have to look at. When you look at things like the sun standing still or uh, darkness of the land, well, it's genre. And so now this is, this is being more my cup of tea. So when you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and the events on the cross, it says in Matthew's gospel, the tombs broke open and many dead people were walking around. That's apocalyptic language. That's all this is. This is apocalyptic language. This is, this is the bones of Ezekiel 37 coming to life. So the fact is, is he describing something of actual historical significance that actually happened historically? Or is he using apocalyptic language to say, Ezekiel's being fulfilled, guys. Ezekiel's being fulfilled. And I think the latter is the answer. It's Ezekiel being fulfilled. And how do we know? Because no one ever talked about these bodies after that. What happened to them? Matthew doesn't address what happened to the bodies. Mark and Luke don't even mention them. John doesn't say anything about them. The book of Acts, did they, did they continue living on? Were they zombies? Did they have souls? All these questions we would ask, like the fact that those questions aren't even answered tells you because there wasn't actually dead people walking the streets. It's apocalyptic language to tell you what's going on. Now, as far as the, the darkness coming over the land, well, you go to the book of Acts at Pentecost now. At Pentecost, Peter's like, hey guys, I know we're speaking all these tongues. And you have flames of fire and violent wind. That's Exodus imagery, right? The, the wind and the flames of fire, the presence of God language. And maybe that happened. That's fine. But they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all man, mankind, and there'll be signs in the sun, the earth, the moon, and the stars. Not maybe an accurate quote, but something, something along those lines. There's going to be these phenomena, this cosmic phenomena. But no one ever says that the sun became darkened during Pentecost. No one says that. Peter quotes Joel, and that's what Joel says. 
But Luke doesn't say, oh, there was darkness, and that's why Peter quoted Joel. It doesn't say it was dark. It doesn't say that the moon became like blood. And think about this, by the way. If it's darkness, because the sun's darkened, you can't see the moon. So when you have this apocalyptic image, he says, the sun became darkened and the moon became like blood. That's the book of Revelation also. It can't be literal. Because if the sun's darkened, you can't see the moon. And so you, you realize, oh, it's apocalyptic imagery. And the way I like to describe apocalyptic imagery is, is this cosmic upheaval language. The, the earth was shaking and the foundations of the earth shook and the, the heavens were, were ripped apart like a sunder, like a scroll that was rolled up and the stars fell from the sky. Now, by the way, it can't be stars falling from the sky because they're billions of miles away and you wouldn't actually see them. And if they fell here, one star is bigger than the whole earth. It would blow the whole, it's apocalyptic language. And what you're doing is you're saying, when God acts in history like this, whether it's the cross, whether it's Pentecost, whether it's the resurrection of Jesus, whether it's the descent of the spirit here on, on Mount Sinai, when God acts in history, I have no other language to use except there was an earthquake like no earthquake ever before or there ever will be after that. That's Revelation 16. And there's a hundred pound hailstones. Okay, a hundred pound hailstones would destroy life. But they cried out to God because of the hailstorms, because its, its plague was extremely severe. There'd be nobody alive to cry out. Okay, and that's what we're thinking. And the answer is, the writers would be going, you guys are like crazy. Because you're trying to reconcile the literalness of this language and missing the point of the language. So... That raises the question now, and by the way, there's a, a major professor in an evangelical school, I'm trying to think of the name, and a popular school, and he's very conservative and very evangelical, and he lost his job because he said Matthew 28 or Matthew 27 was not literal. There was, it literally did not become dark during while Jesus was on the cross. It's just apocalyptic language, and the tombs did not literally break open. It's apocalyptic language. And that's a valid or viable option. You may agree with it. You may not agree with it. It doesn't matter. The guy lost his job. It's like, are we stymieing thinking? See, you don't have to agree with what I just said. That's fine. Let's just think about this. Let's process and go, okay. You might think, no, they literally broke open the tombs. And they, it was literally dark. That's fine. No problem at all. I'm, I'm going to look at it and go, I think it's a apocalyptic language, guys. I think it's just exaggerative language to say this is what's going on because it's God breaking in history and I have no other way to describe it, but this language. And let's go have lunch at the end of the day. And this guy lost his job, which means in these institutions, you can't think. And if you can't think, that's why the Bible translations all say what they say, because if the Bible translation says something else, then all these institutions won't use it because you can't allow thinking in these institutions of that kind anyways. There's some thinking, but just not, not critical thinking when it comes to things like this. So I, don't, I, I, I ranted a little bit. I hope that's okay. <laughs> So does that, does that then <clears throat> apply to the resurrection? No, I don't think so at all, because there's, it's not apocalyptic language in the sense that um, there's, there's apocalyptic language surrounding it, because that's always the question, right? Okay, what do we do with the resurrection of Jesus? It's like, it happened. There's no question. I, I have no question at all that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. It appeared to the disciples afterwards that they touched his side, that he, but he, he still walked through walls. But that he did appear, the two men on the road to Emmaus, the two people on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. Then they saw the nail marks in his hands later on. I think that's what happened. And they reckon, oh, it's Jesus. Oh, wow. And Mary's like, oh, it's Jesus. That's who you are. And she grabs on him. All, I think those are all true stories, as we call true stories. I think the language that's used to describe those stories, you got to be careful about whether it's all meant to be literalized in, in all of its details. Mm -hmm. So like darkness, 
And that's what people, people do with the book of Revelation, right? Oh, it's describing nuclear warfare. It's like, how do you get that? It's not possible because you, you just can't be consistent. The helicopters that come out of the abyss are military helicopters. Folks, the Russians military hangar is not the abyss, right? Does that mean Satan's thrown into the abyss? And that's a Russian military hangar for a thousand years. It's just ridiculous the way we, we kind of do with these. So these are just questions that we need to ask and grapple with the text and say, what's the, what's the genre of the text? So when we look at Genesis, we say, well, it's history, but it's history the way the ancients wrote history. And the creation accounts that they wrote that we know these creation accounts are modeled, our creation accounts modeled after, no one was suggesting that there really was sea dragons out there fighting these, these battles that the gods had to stop in order to do his creating. But that's the way the biblical story is telling its story. So I, I think that's correct. I, I've come all the way from the right on the far right to what you might go, oh, Rob's a real liberal on these things, like uh, whatever you want to call me, I don't care. But uh, it's, it's been a long process. So anything else? I hate, I hate to use the word because it's gotten just this negative connotation over the last eight years, if you will, or 10 years. But um, to a certain extent, it kind of sounds like it's hyperbole, but it's hyperbole specific to the apocalyptic outlook in specific genre is what you're trying to say then, right? Uh, I'd say some things are hyperbole. So read the book of Joshua, full of hyperbole. They wiped out all the inhabitants of the land. They wiped them all out. Then open up the book of Judges. They're all there. They didn't kill them all. It's hyperbole. Okay. Because when ancient kings tell war stories, what do they say? I, we wiped them all out. There wasn't one soul left. That's just the way they tell history. So that's called hyperbole. And Joshua does it also. And the fact that all these Canaanites are still there in the book of Judges tells you, you didn't wipe them all out, did you? Uh, like you said, in, it's in the book of Joshua too, because the next chapter will say they didn't wipe them all out. Uh, that's hyperbole. Um, when they say uh, the sun and the moon were, were turned black or the stars fell from the sky, that's ap apocalyptic language. So I wouldn't say Genesis is apocalyptic. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's what we call creation. Um, and again, I don't want to use the word myth because that, that's the proper word, but, that, but we mean something different by it than they meant by it. So if we were in an Old Testament scholarly course, we would call this a creation myth. But I can't say that here because you think I mean something that I don't mean by it. As like, it's a false story about mythological characters and creatures like, no, I'm just simply saying they're writing the history. And let's say the history is written, let's say Moses wrote it, that's fine. Let's say Moses wrote some of it, 1300s BC, 14th century BC. Well, you're writing something about the distant past. And now the story I used to believe as well, they got scrolls, they're written down, stories were told over generations and they memorized them. And, and of course, Moses, the leader of the Israelite people, he's going to have copies of the scrolls. Here's the reality. I'm good. I'm, I'm good with this, totally good with this, the way it is. In fact, I think my faith is stronger than it was when I had to literalize everything. Because when I was literalizing everything, I was like, I had to defend everything. Every accusation had to be defended. Where does history start? I think that's a great question. I think that's a great question. I have no problem with history starting at least with Genesis 12 and Abraham's story. I have no problem with that. I think there's a genre change in Genesis 12, so I think that makes sense. So that leaves Genesis 1 through 11 uh, not fitting in there. Okay, are we good? All right, let's run through the rest of this really quickly. I hate to keep you guys uh, so long, but uh, I think I bored some of you. Sorry about that, but uh, here we go. Uh, so Genesis 3 and the rest of scripture. Entrance in the Eden. I'm just gonna kind of read this off because we, we've gone so long. Uh, Jesus is on the door. Uh, that's it. He's the door. The, the door that was guarded by the cherubim, Jesus is that door. And then Revelation chapter three says, I put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Ah, 
the door that was guarded, the gate to Eden, is now opened by Jesus. And then Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 says, I saw a door standing open in heaven. Ah, and a voice said, come here. And John went up. All right, Revelation 22, verse 14 says, we will enter by the gates into the city, and its gates will never be shut. So I think this is New Jerusalem language, but it's also Eden language. And we discussed how the New Jerusalem has some Eden language in it, and we can go over that some more at another time. Let's look at the Luke 10 passage. Let's look at the Luke 10. Are you guys okay with time right now? Yes. Yeah. All right. I don't want to skip over this too quickly here. Luke 10, 17 to 20. This is really a critical passage. Somebody want to read it? Okay. Now the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from the heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Uh, And I encourage you to listen to the podcast with Dr. Jace Broadhurst that we did in January of 2022 in our Gospel of Mark study, where we went over the serpent and the snake imagery. And I believe we discussed this passage here, in fact. But Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Ah, exactly. Remember, it's the kingdom of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this is the battle. And Jesus is the seed of the woman. We're going to look at that in a minute. And what's he doing? I'm giving you authority to trample. You're going to, you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. I've given you authority to crush his head. This is Genesis 3 language. Oh, and you're going to trample on them and tread over serpents and scorpions. Oh, cool. This is it. Now, Let's go to Romans 16, because guess what? This is exactly what Paul says. Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You will crush his head. Well, the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent's head. But what does Paul say? Paul says, you guys, the church in Rome, you're going to crush the serpent's head. In other words, as Christians, we're in the serpent's head crushing business. We are to trample over the head of the serpent. Ah, there we go. Roman Revelation 12, we won't have time to go over all chapter, all of chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. But in Revelation 12, there's a woman, and this might not make sense to you at the beginning of the passage, Revelation 12, who's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown with 12 stars. That's Genesis chapter 37. So if you write down in your notes, if you want to look it up later, Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 37, verse 9. Genesis 37, verse 9. It's Joseph's dream. And in Joseph's dream, he's describing Israel. And this woman is Israel. And then verse 3, it says, another sign appeared in heaven. I'm in Revelation 12, verse 3. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. On his head were seven diadems, or seven crowns. His tail swept away a third of the stars of the sky and threw them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who is Israel, or the church, the people of God, who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now look at the next verse. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That, that's Christ. And it goes straight to the, res, to the ascension of Jesus. And then look what happens. And the woman, after the child like, ascends, the woman, that's us, fled in the wilderness 
for she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Then we skip down verse 13. The dragon was thrown down to the earth. And when he saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted, or some translators might say pursued, and the Greek can say it can mean either one. He pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. This is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent at war. It's the dragon, Satan, chasing after God's people. And it says, uh, let's skip down to verse uh, 16. It says, the earth helped the woman and drank up the water which the dragon poured forth. And the dragon was enraged at the woman, verse 17, went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And the Greek word there is seed. Who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So Revelation 12 is describing to us the war described in Genesis 3 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's saying this is the war that's been playing out in history. It started in the Old Testament time frame before the child was born. The dragon stood before the woman. Then the woman gave birth to a child. Now it's Jesus. And he was snatched up to heaven. And then the dragon's kicked out of heaven because of that. And he's like, oh, now he's really ticked off and he's chasing after us. And by the way, if you want a definition of Armageddon, I just gave it to you. That's called Armageddon. The biblical definition of Armageddon is the war Satan wages against God's people. And he's been waging it against God's people. And he's really ticked off because since the cross, he's been kicked out of heaven. And he knows this time is short. Uh, Galatians 3 verse 16, Paul specifically, explicitly, unequivocally says that Jesus is the seed. And some people are going, well, Paul's wrong here because the word seed's plural and he's saying the seed's one. But uh, Galatians 3 verse 16, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. He does not say, and to his seeds, plural, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So the, the gospel that was first announced in Genesis 3.15, Paul says, was pointing us to Jesus all along. Jesus is the seed, singular, not seeds. And Paul's argument is it's not the Jews as a people. It's Jesus as the true Israelite. And through Jesus, all people, well, all people who have faith in him. We can bring up 1 John chapter 3 when we discuss Cain and Abel. How's that? So Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, we kind of discussed this earlier, but let me go ahead and reference it now. So if you're in Galatians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so three books to your right, you're going to find Colossians. So Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and I've said this before, and I wrote, wrote this on my blog, if you want me to give some more details, on the, on the blog on women, I think there's like 15 blogs on women. So it's probably like the 13th, 14th, or 15th post. So sometime last fall, fall of 2021. So Galatians 3, 18 and 19, does somebody want to read it? Read this verse as though it's the reversal of Genesis 3. God was describing what Genesis 3 was going to be like, and Paul's like, and now it's being reversed. I got it. Thank you. Rules for Christian households. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. It's the reversal of Genesis 3. Right. Wives, be subject to your husbands, because I know you want to dominate them. Right? Genesis 3 says you're going to try to dominate them. But, and husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Don't rule them harshly. What's exactly what you're supposed, you're, you're, you've been doing since Genesis 3. And then Colossians 3 is giving us the reversal of the punishment upon Adam and Eve or the consequence of their sin. Again, it's not the curse because they weren't cursed. The Satan was cursed and the land was cursed. Anybody else?
I got a question in, in that regard. Okay. You look at the high places and what was going on with the false worship and false gods. There was usually a lot of extreme perverted sexual activity that was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. You think that perhaps what we were talking about earlier with the Baptist church, other churches, certainly the Catholic church, mm. is that not sex itself being a tool by which evil is infiltrating and trying to diminish the church's impact? I think that's what it means when you're going to have greater pain in childbirth and childbearing, that sexual sins is going to increase. And typically sexual sin, not always, but typically sexual sins are abusive to the women vast majority of cases. So I'd say, yeah. And I think it's also a problem, Anthony, when you have a patriarchal system, I'm not saying it's inherently wrong. I'm saying it gives its way to, we're the men of the church. We're the ones in charge of this church. And it breeds narcissism. And it breeds, it breeds danger. And it breeds, I'm above the law. And that becomes really problematic. And I think that's also problematic for Catholic churches too, because the priest can't marry and they can't have sexual satisfaction. And I think that's why you see so many problems in the, in the Catholic church. And then you have this culture that says, but we can't let people know. And it gets hidden. And I think you have all those things adding into this. Adding into this. And I think that's why it's such a, that's part of the answer. That's certainly not all of it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.